You probably want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6. Today we resume our study in the book of Psalms. It is It kind of became our strategy, if you will, that when we finish one book of the Bible, we will then, before we start the next book, we will do five to ten Psalms. That way it helps us get through the entire book of Psalms. Yes, it's going to take a while. Um, I mean, even if we did, well, it's going to take us a while. Um, But this way we can integrate the Psalms into our studies. And so having finished the book of 1 Corinthians last week and not quite ready to start the book of Ecclesiastes um, for the next five weeks, we will look into the book of Psalms. And today it will be Psalm chapter 6. Let me remind you, since maybe some of you are not experts in the book of Psalms and some of you may have forgotten uh, some of the, uh, the ways the, the psalms work, let me remind you that there are many types of psalms. Psalms are basically songs, and there are many types of psalms. Uh, probably the best known, the one that we think about when we think of psalm, is a psalm of praise. That is, it is one that gives praise to God. There are psalms of thanksgiving, which give thanksgiving to God. There are psalms of lament, These are psalms where the the psalmist cries out, Woe is me, and woe is everything, and it's not going to get better. They are very dark, but they are psalms, and we see them. We see psalms of ascent. uh, ascent. That is, that these were psalms that the, the, the people sang as they walked up the hill to Jerusalem as they walked up the hill and in, in approach, approaching the temple that was at the top of the hill. That's why they are called the Psalms of Ascent because as they went up, they sang these hymns anticipating meeting with God at the temple. We see um, Psalms of Coronation. These would have been songs that were sung at the coronation of a king. So there are multiple... There are more than that, but there are multitudes of different types of psalms. Today, um, our psalm is what has been categorized as a penitential psalm, a psalm of repentance. It has been traditionally classified along with five other penitential psalms. Psalm Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, 102 and 143 have all been classically and historically designated as penitential psalms. Psalms of repentance. And in most of them, we see clearly David crying out for forgiveness. Psalm 51 is probably the classic. It is his David's uh, repentance over his sin with Bathsheba. But usually there is a clear... Um, Grief over his sin and, a, and his desire that God would forgive him. Today, in Psalm 6, we will see that David, will plead, David pleads for God to restrain his wrath. And this is why this psalm has been categorized as a psalm, a penitential psalm or a psalm of repentance, because David is pleading with God to withhold his anger and his wrath from him. But many Bible students have noticed that this psalm doesn't fit neatly into the category of penitential psalms. 
Because one of the things we don't see is we never see David mention his sin. Nor do we ever see him repent of his sin. So some have said, well, this is a likely a penitential psalm, but it doesn't fit neatly into that category. Perhaps David is in a trial, and because he's in a trial, he's assuming that he has sinned against God, and he is assuming that the difficulty that he is encountering is because of sin, so he is pleading with God in, on, on that behalf. But the result is, the bottom line is, is whether this is a classic penitential psalm, or perhaps even David is just being stretched. Uh, Well, the fact is, David is being stretched. And his suffering will bring about growth and maturity. One of the things we find very common, common in the book of Psalms is that they often begin, there's a progression, and they begin with despair, and they conclude with rejoicing. They begin with defeat, and they conclude with victory. And we'll see that today. David will begin in defeat. He will begin his psalm in despair. But at the end, he comes about victorious and rejoicing. There is a confidence that David um, acknowledges in being in the presence of God. He finds God's presence um, the answer to his circumstances and he finds the sufficiency of the Lord perfectly substantial to handle whatever difficulty he's in. So God is both present and because he is present, his presence is sufficient to deal with whatever woe he is dealing with. Today we're going to see that David is stretched to the breaking point. But we will see that his test ends in victory. So let me give you a preview of how I'm going to address this psalm. There will be three major movements. We will see in verses 1 through 5 David's plea. Verses 6 through 7, David's pain. And verses 8 through 10, David's prediction. Now, it would be one thing if what we do is we just go through our psalm and we look at David's plea and David's pain and David's prediction and we, and we exegete the passage really well and we go away knowing exactly what the psalm is about. But one of the things we need to be mindful of is that psalms aren't just simply about David, but about David's greater son, Jesus Christ. So one of the things that we are going to do today and throughout our study in the book of Psalms is to demonstrate how this psalm points us to David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Jesus clearly said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you have eternal life. Don't you know that they point or speak of me? So all of the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures point to the Son of God. And today, that's one of the things. So we want to talk about David's plea. We want to talk about David's pain. We want to talk about David's prediction. But we cannot neglect pointing to David's greater son, who is the fulfillment of this psalm. Not only that, but Jesus used this psalm in his own life. And we will see where Jesus um, uh, took the words of the psalm, and applied it to his own ministry. So, 
With that um, as our introduction, we have sung the psalm. So now let us read the psalm. Listen to the inerrant word of the living God. Psalm chapter 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. David begins his plea with, Lo, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. David recognizes that he has provoked divine wrath. And I want to pause for a moment and and speak just briefly about God's anger and God's wrath. First thing I want you to note, though, is that David does not plead with God to have God's righteous discipline removed from him. He's not saying, whatever it is you're working in me, whatever these trials are doing, he's not saying necessarily to stop them, but just make sure that you are not enacting discipline upon me in your wrath or in your anger. If you were to do so, Lord, what hope would I have? I would be a dead man. So, it is not a plea to have God's righteous discipline removed, but to do so, but to do so in a manner that would not include his wrath. Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24. I think I have that up on the screen. This one here, um, I think, speaks well to uh, this idea. Can we flip the slide? The slide? Maybe not. I can always read Jeremiah. Jeremiah ten twenty four. Listen to to the prophet. There we go. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So Jeremiah is saying, go ahead and correct me. That's not the issue. Do it in justice. Just don't do it in your anger. If you do it in your anger, I will come to nothing. There will be nothing left of me. Not even a heap of ashes. So, it, not that you would leave me unpunished. Davis is saying, not that you're going to leave me unpunished. Just don't do it in your wrath lest you bring me to nothing. He's not even pleading for the removal of whatever it is that is afflicting him, but for moderation. Oftentimes when we think of the wrath of God, certain, certain images come to our mind. Certainly um, the flood 
would come to our mind when we speak of the wrath of God, where God saw that the deeds of men were always wicked. And, and he destroyed the entire world except for Noah and his family. Certainly, when we think of the wrath of God, that image comes to mind. Perhaps we think of the ground opening up and swallowing uh, numerous people. Yeah, that's the wrath of God. Certainly, an image that comes to mind when we think of the wrath of God is Sodom and Gomorrah. These are vivid portrayals of God's wrath. But they are not the only portrayals of God's wrath. And let me just warn those who might become complacent that when we sin and the ground does not open up and swallow us whole, that we think, well, I got away with something. Let us not conclude that since a bad event didn't occur, God is absent or indifferent. You will consider with me Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, and he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. How does he... How does he um, Pour out his wrath. Is the ground opened and people swallowed up? Are cities burned? Is the world flooded with water? Verse 24 and following portrays for us how God pours out his wrath. And it is frightening. Way more frightening than a, fi- than, than a city on fire. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to be dishonored, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, for what reason? This, this is the wrath of God. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know not. They Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Did you see how God's wrath is poured out? He gave them up. He gave them up to their, their, their passions. He gave them up to their lusts. He gave them up to their desires. He let them do it. He did not open the ground and swallow them up. He did not send a flood. There was no fire from heaven. 
He let them. He left them alone in their sin. This is perhaps the most frightening of all of God's expressions of His wrath. But this is God's wrath. When He lets you sin, what a frightening day that is. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, this is what Paul writes. And there's much to unpack here, but we're not in the book of Romans. But he says this, but because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when righteous judgment will be revealed. What a frightening thought. You're storing up wrath. It's like there's this container. And it is just stacking up. The wrath of God is being stored up for the day of judgment. So when we think about the wrath of God, David is saying, do not rebuke me in your wrath. Do not discipline me in your anger. I would come to nothing. And the wrath of God is often seen as the ground opening and swallowing us up. But the wrath of God is God saying, fine, do what you want. And I'm going to store up my wrath. And on the day of my judgment, all of this evidence will condemn you. What a frightening idea. What a frightening uh, thought. We, we do not fear the wrath of God. We often don't even preach about the wrath of God, but it's here. We have a lot of things that we are afraid of. We have multiple fears. But I would suggest that we fear the wrong things. We, we fear crime and illness and death, financial difficulty. We, we fear... The government, we fear so many different things. David feared the wrath of God. And in this case, my friends, we should align ourselves with David. David is asking God, don't judge me in your wrath. Don't discipline me as a sinner. He's not asking for it to be removed, but that he would moderate. And I want to encourage you, church, that God moderates his discipline towards his children. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 5, the writer of Hebrews says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addressed you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there among whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. David is saying... Listen, God, don't pour out your wrath upon me. Chastise me. That's good. Do, do it as one of your sons. Discipline me as your child. Rebuke and discipline are often found together in the wisdom literature of the Bible. And God may rebuke his child because of sin. He also may discipline you for growth. That is for our good. So sometimes we're going through challenging times. The, the, the way is dark, but 
That does not necessarily mean that you have been abandoned by God. God disciplines us. He allows us to suffer that we might grow. We'll unpack that as we go along. So David begins, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. So don't discipline me in your wrath, but rather, Lord, be gracious to me. That is, give favor towards me. I am needy. Look, he says, for I am languishing. I have a lack. There's an obvious lack. I am one who is needy. I don't, Lord, not your wrath, not your anger, but in your grace. Because, Lord, I got nothing. I got nothing to offer you. I got no strength. I got no goodness. I got nothing. He, his lack is expressed. Lord, I am feeble. That would be a very more literal idea of languishing. I'm feeble. David is recognizing his need for divine aid. Who is sufficient to come to my aid? David does not rely on picking himself up by his bootstraps. If help is going to come, it's going to come from the Lord, and this is David's plea. James Johnson, in his commentary, writes this. He says, He, David, knows God. His heart turns to God with faith that could not grow in any other soil. There are many types of faith that we simply cannot have except in times of trouble. You can't trust God with your life unless your life is on the line. You can't really trust God to provide for you unless you have nothing. And you cannot provide for yourself. You can't fully hope in God unless you have no other hope. And David is saying, I got nothing, Lord. I'm languishing. I'm feeble. Be gracious to me. Not in your anger. That will bring me to nothing. But be gracious to me. I'm not able to do this myself. He says, my bones and my soul are, are troubled. God seems to be treating him like an enemy. David is saying, there is no part of me that is not affected. My body and my soul, every aspect of me is languishing. I got nothing here, Lord. There is no part of me that is not troubled and just... So you, you know this idea of my, my soul is troubled, my bones are troubled. This word literally means terrified. Probably better translated here as troubled. But it's, also, uh, it's, it's used through, in a variety of places in the Old Testament. It's used in Genesis 45.3 that describes Joseph's brothers when he revealed himself to them. They were terrified. Here is the second most powerful man in the world, and it is a man that they betrayed many, many years earlier. A man whom they have lied about, a man whom they despised, and they sold into slavery, and now Joseph says, I'm your brother, Joseph. Yeah, they were terrified. What is this man going to do to us? It is also used of Saul's reaction when Samuel spoke to him from the grave. I don't think Saul was expecting Samuel to show up. Yeah, he was terrified. And we see his soul and his body affected. We should turn to John chapter 12, verse 27, because Jesus uses this, this phrase, and I think we have that up on the screen also. John chapter 12, 
verse 27, Jesus cites this passage. He says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. So Jesus cites this psalm. Um, Jesus has just entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. The people have praised him. Hosanna in the highest. But Jesus knew that he was about to be rejected. He knew that God was going to turn his back upon him. When Jesus had set his face to the cross, he was gripped by the horror of what was set before him. And he echoes Psalm chapter 6. My soul is troubled. His purpose was to bear God's wrath entirely. He will not plead for mercy. His purpose was to bear the wrath of God for our sins. We are the rebels and he bears the penalty. My soul is troubled. David then goes on, My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? How long is the cry of the weary, is it not? Basically, when will you do something, God? When is this trial going to end? And most of us have expressed these two words, How long, O Lord? Most of us have expressed these words. They are words of dismay, or perhaps sometimes even a challenge. Really, God, how long are you going to make this last? Aren't you powerful enough to do something? How long, O Lord? They are words of dismay, sometimes even a word of challenge. One of the interesting things about um, these these two words, we see them um, somewhat frequently in Scripture, and we are rarely, if ever, provided a concrete answer. The people who cry out, how long? God doesn't say, well, two more weeks. Or 48 hours. Or six months. Or a year. We are not given concrete answers. Revelation chapter 6.10 may be one of the, the great passages of text where the martyred saints ask God, how much longer until justice is served? And he said, Still a while. He comforted them. You see, the response of God to the question, how long, which we all have probably had, the response of God to the question, how long, is a call to trust. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, writes this. He says, all of God's delays or maturings, either of time, as in Psalm 37, or of the man in Psalm 119.67. In other words, all of God's delays are to mature, are to bring about maturity, whether in time, such as in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. That was a maturing of time. It wasn't the right time, but at the right time, God did a certain thing. Or the maturing of you and me as individuals. We cry how long, and that delay is God working in our lives to bring us to a place Uh, that more conforms to the likeness of his son. We cry, how long? And God says, take comfort. This is good. And then David cries out, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Turn, 
Save me because of your steadfast love. Psalmist makes a plea that God be not distant. Turn from me. Turn towards me. Turn in my direction. Do not have your back towards me. Be aware of my plight. Look at me. You're walking away from me. Turn around. Come back to me. Turn your face towards me. It feels to the psalmist like God is against him. And he's saying, turn, God. Turn towards me. Look upon me. Save me. And I like this. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Save me in consideration. This is the motive. Why should you save me, God? I'm going to give you your reason why you ought to save me. You ought to save me because of your steadfast love. Save me. That should be your motive. Save me in accordance with your steadfast love. So let's pause for just a moment. I want to think about this idea of steadfast love. This word steadfast love is translated in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament. It might be translated as loving kindness or unfailing kindness or in the New Testament, it might even be um, translated as, as grace. But you should know, or let me inform you, that this Hebrew word chesed is more or less untranslatable in English. Well, I shouldn't say that. We can translate it. We just can't translate it concisely, not in a single word or two words. It takes a paragraph. And so... I will not be able to give you its fullness. But one of the ways it can be translated is in accordance with your covenant love. And I like that term. Covenant love. Save me, Lord, for the sake of your covenant love. Let your motive for saving me be your covenant love. You see, God made a covenant with Israel. The covenant that God made was not due to their size. It was not due to their ability. It was not due because they loved God more than the other nations. In fact, God chose them. He set his covenant love upon them before they even existed. They hadn't even done anything. They didn't even exist. Let alone do something good. He brought them into existence through a pagan moon worshiper by the name of Abram. And it wasn't because of Abram's righteousness or goodness or his family line or anything like that. God called Abraham. It was not Abram's choice. He didn't say, oh man, if there was only a better God around that I could serve, and man, oh, there's a Yahweh. There's a Yahweh God. I'm going to serve him. Abram, for all we know, is a moon worshiper. And God interrupts his life and says, Abram, you and your family get up from Ur of Chaldees and go to the place that I will show you. And from Abram, a man incapable of bearing children, God says, I will make a nation out of you. There is no nation of Israel. Nobody's heard of an Israel. And Abram, he's that guy who can't have kids. And God says, I will make a nation out of you. He made promises to be their God. I will be your God and you will be my people. David cries, save me. Not due to my merit, 
but because of your covenant love. I am yours because of your will. You swore loyal to me. You promised that if I would repent, you would forgive and save me. I plead with you on the basis of the covenant love that you expressed to me. Save me based on your covenant love. We could call this the gospel in the book of Psalms. See, we come to God and we plead deliverance from his wrath. We seek his friendly presence. Turn to me. But on what basis? We pray, God, deliver me from your wrath. Turn towards me because of your covenant love. We remember God's covenant love. I hope that we would remember God's covenant love every morning, every evening, and every moment in between. But certainly every Lord's Day, we remember God's covenant love. One of the ways we do that is we receive the Lord's Supper, which is the symbols of his covenant that he has made towards us, and certainly his love that is expressed towards us. Jesus inaugurated this new covenant in his blood, and he did not inaugurate it with his people, his disciples, you and me, he did not inaugurate a new covenant in his blood on the basis of heritage. It was not on the basis of birth. It was not because of outward merit. Read John 1.12 that he, um, he saved us on the basis of the covenant that he made with his people. Save me on the basis of Christ. This is not, we do not do penance in order to earn God's favor. See, God loved you before you ever did a good thing in his name. I think of the people of Israel after they'd become a nation and God brought them into the wilderness and he made a covenant with them. And he said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gave them the commands. In other words, you were my people before Before I gave you a command, I saved you. Now I'm going to give you a command. God saved you long before you ever kept his commands. You you do not please God. God does not love you more because of things you do, gracious things you do in his name. He loved you, evidenced by the fact that Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose on the third day. Save me on the basis of Christ. He goes on and he says, for in death there is no remembrance of you. I think that this path, this line has brought a lot of confusion to a lot of people and all sorts of weird ideas have, have come about. We won't go into those. But certainly, we see from Scripture that people do recognize God in Sheol, and God is actually in Sheol. Like Psalm 136 talks about, where can I go from your presence? There's nowhere I can go. God, um, God inhabits every place in the universe. I think what David is getting at here in this poetic psalm that there is a time when we face death after which there is no longer any saving work. Save me based on your covenant love because after death there is no saving or the work the saving work of God has ceased. Derek Kidner again says God brings you to 
brings to an end his saving interventions. The idea here is David is saying, listen, I'm suffering. Save me according to your gracious, save me according to your steadfast love, according to your covenant love. And this will glorify your name. Because in death, in other words, God is glorified in our sufferings and trials. In the death of Christ, God was glorified. See John 13, 31, 17, 1, and Romans 3, 25. Again, James Johnson writes this. This is a powerful perspective for us to hold on to when God stretches us. Lord, what I want most in this situation is for you to bring glory to yourself. I want the pain to end, of course. Please rescue me because I'm about to break. But save me so that I can tell others about your great glory and power. At the end of the day, this is about you, O Lord. Whatever brings you praise will ultimately bring me pleasure. Whatever brings you glory is for my good. Church, I know many of us are in trial and difficulty, and we want it to end, of course. But at the end of the day, Let us remember, this is about God. This is about Christ. And whatever brings him praise will ultimately bring us pleasure. And whatever brings him glory will be for our good. So Lord, don't rebuke me in your wrath, but save me by your steadfast love. And do so in a way that would um, bring glory to your wondrous name. second part of the psalm is David's pain, and I'll be very brief here. David's pain is on full display. Weeping and moaning, which, weary da- uh, which, with, which both weary David. I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all of my foes. David's pain is on full display. He weeps and he moans and he's wearied by his weeping and moaning. We get, the, get an idea of the magnitude, and persist, the magnitude of his pain and the persistence of his plea. All night I'm crying. We see David's weakness. He is beyond self-help and he is beyond good advice. Because of my foes, he says. Let me just say, sometimes foes or difficulties or enemies actually motivate us and give us strength. Sometimes adversity motivates us. A great example, especially in the life of David, is that of Goliath. Goliath was a foe. He was a threat. He did not cause David to be weak. Instead, he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He has no business. I'll go up against him. His foes actually strengthen him. David is beyond that. My adversity does no longer motivate me. I am done. My strength is faded. I no longer am roused by my foes. I am weakened by my foes. I'm just tired. I am ready to give up. I got nothing in the tank. Folks, grief has physical effects. Jesus sweated drops of blood. In church, I want us to remember that God's people are not exempt from the dark night of the soul. We are not exempt from the valley of the shadow of death. 
1866 before 5,000 people at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Charles Spurgeon shocked his congregation. He told them that I am racked with a depression that I pray none of you ever have to deal with. He affirmed that a year later, but it shocked his audience. Really? This man is arguably the greatest preacher who has ever lived in the history of mankind. Save Christ alone, and maybe the Apostle Paul. But other than that, the greatest, surely God is with this man. God has anointed this man. Look at the great things that this man has done. Look at the orphanages that this man has established. Listen to his great understanding of God's word. What do you mean you are racked by depression? God's people are not exempt from the dark nights of the soul. We are not exempt from the valley of the shadow of death. One, in fact, you might be surprised how many of the greats that we would consider greats, men and women of God, were racked by the same thing that Spurgeon was racked with. Perhaps God is teaching them to humble themselves, I may, or to, to be reliant upon him. I have no idea. I just know that God's people... It is not uncommon, and maybe people here, i got nothing. I cry alone all night. My bed is soaked with tears. i got nothing. I need the sufficiency of Christ. Grief has physical effects. Like I said, we saw this in Christ who sweated drops of blood. But now we get to a radical change in the psalm, and that is David's prediction Apart from me, all you workers of evil, the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. Oh, what a great... Folks, if you weep all night, if your bed is wet with tears, the Lord has heard the sound of our weeping. There's a sudden shift from languishing on his bed to kingly authority, confidence that God has heard his prayer. And he cries and he, and he, he proclaims, depart from me. This is a call to purge his kingdom of all evildoers. He is fully aware that God has heard his cry. And so David, the king, asserts his right to banish all evildoers. Wait a second. I'm the king. All evildoers, depart from me. God has heard my prayer. Workers of evil, get out of my kingdom. God has heard my prayer. God's king puts God's will into effect. Folks, Luke 13, 27. I think we have this also. If we can get there. Because Jesus used this very phrase, this very line in, in a couple of places. Um, but I'll read Luke 13, 27. Jesus is talking about the narrow door that few come through it. But he says, I tell you this, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. We find this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, depart from me, 
um, you workers of evil. And then in chapter 25, verse 41, he talks about the sheep and the goats, and he talks about the goats. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The king, in his kingly role, purges the kingdom of evildoers. On a day when some will claim to be loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, he tells them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. That is, on a future day, our Lord, who at one time was mocked and scorned by his foes, who sweated drops of blood in prayerful agony, who wept over Jerusalem for her rebellion, will, in kingly authority, purge his kingdom of all evildoers, even those who outwardly demonstrate kingdom loyalty, will be banished by the king. Jesus' shame and anguish on the cross were not the end of the story. After the agony of his soul, the risen Christ will judge the world and purge everyone who practices sin from his kingdom. David's banishment of the wicked points forward to the work of his greater son, King Jesus Christ. Depart from me. The Lord has heard. The Lord accepts my prayer. This indicates that God now is David's ally. God's now my ally. He is no longer the one who is turned away from me. He is now on my side. Here we find that God is more than a hearer of prayers, nor is he a reluctant responder to prayer. We might say, well, God doesn't hear prayer. Or we might say, yeah, God answers, but we just, you know, he's kind of a reluctant, okay, whatever. No, God has aligned himself with the one in whom there is a covenant relationship. You are my covenant child. I now align myself with you. God affirms the covenant that David had appealed to by taking his pleas and acting upon them. God acts in accordance with the covenant that he had made with his covenant people. David's foes may have many advantages. They may be more in number. They may have a stronger military. They may have better resources. They may have more convincing accusations, but they are not equipped to stand against God and his covenant partner. David now realizes this. God has heard my prayer. He is my covenant partner. Who can stand before us? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Victory is assured in verse 10. His enemies, I love this, his enemies will be troubled. You will note that in verse 3, David says, my soul is troubled, is terrified. David now says, my enemies are troubled. They shall turn back. They shall turn away. Because why? Because God, God has turned towards David. Remember David's prayer. Turn to me. God has turned towards him, and now his enemies turn away from him. Their faces were towards David and now their backs are towards David. David has called upon his covenant God and he has turned his face towards him. And David is now has the friendly presence of God Almighty and his enemies have turned to flee. The affliction that they heaped upon David has now become their inheritance. They turn away from David as God has turned towards David. So there's our song. I'll just uh, draw a few gospel connections. And um, this will be kind of a lengthy conclusion. Some gospel connections. Um, You may have drawn some yourself. I'll just bring a few. And you probably can draw way more than 
than I have here. But I want to remind you that God's covenant love stands at the center of this song. David does not appear to know the, quote, why of his trials. David is truly afflicted. He is truly in pain. He is truly um, in a bad place. He is truly in the valley of the shadow of death. He is truly dealing with the dark night of the soul. We're not minimizing that. We're saying that, not saying that that didn't happen. We need to remember that Jesus is David's greater son. Jesus, the one who endured a troubled soul, the one who bore the entirety of God's wrath for our salvation, Jesus, who drank the dregs of the wrath of God on our behalf. Having done so, he, as king, will one day command all evildoers, depart from me. And to those whom he has saved, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. God's covenant love stands at the center of this song. If you've never entered into a friendly covenant with God Almighty through His Son, Jesus Christ, finding Him utterly sufficient, folks, if you are going to rely on your own good works or your own deeds or your own rituals or your own acts, you are not resting solely in the finished work of Christ. And I would call you to the to repent of not trusting Christ solely, solely for your salvation. You can take this Lord's Supper as many times as you want, and it will not save you. Christ saves you. And his work on the cross, when he said, it is finished, guess what? He meant it. He did not lie. It is finished. The work of salvation is complete. It is done. He bore God's wrath on our behalf. And if you are part of a covenant family member, he will truly one day say, come, now blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. And if you were not, he will one day say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I would encourage you today that this would be a time to call upon the name of the Lord and trust in him solely for your salvation. Second gospel connection is that God is conforming us into the image of his son. We see this in Romans chapter 8. That God conforms us into the image of his son. We think that sounds good till we find out what the image of his son comprises. We may limit it to, well, Jesus was a great teacher and he healed people and he did a lot of really cool things. And that's true. We need to remember that God conforming us into the image of his Son includes the entirety of the life of Christ. David is being stretched, and it is by suffering that he is being matured, and it is by suffering that you and I are matured. Are you enduring trial? One question you might ask, well, maybe it's because of sin. This is a penitential psalm. Maybe it's because of my sin. Perhaps it is. I wouldn't just write that off. And if so, confess your sin and find forgiveness in the work of Christ on your behalf. If it is not sin, realize that God tests his children in his work to conform us to the image of his son. He will test, but not to destruction. In fact, many times people have told me over and over again through the years, 
The time that I grew the most is the time that I faced the greatest difficulty. They will say to me, remember when I was going through such and such? Yeah, I remember. And they will say, that's when I grew the most. Do you want to mature in Christ? We all want to mature in Christ. This isn't going to sell a lot of tapes. Well, we don't sell any tapes, so. We all want to mature. Let me tell you that suffering is one aspect of the maturing process. And God is glorified in those times. He will test us, but it will not be to our destruction. Even, even if your life slips from you because of his testing, you will in a moment's in the twinkling of an eye, be in the presence of God Almighty. Do you cry how long? I know many people in this church have been crying how long? How long do I have to go through this? I want to encourage you that God is sufficient. I'll encourage you with this final scripture from the author from, from Hebrews chapter 12. I'll conclude with this scripture. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we give you praise this day. We thank you for Psalm chapter 6. And we pray, Lord God, that you would grow us, that we would be penitent people, and that we would be men and women who endure well for your glory. Glorify yourself in us, even if it has to be through these difficult days. I pray that you are with those who deal with um, weeping night and day on their beds, Lord God, whose deal with depression and anxieties and things, Lord God, they seem to have no control over. Guide them and keep them. Give them strength during those times, Lord God, and strengthen us now in Christ's name. Amen.